Thank you, Elder Haid. We express gratitude uh, for you, for your life, and what you represent to us and for your sweetheart, Ruby. We express our gratitude to the Lord by paying our tithes. Tithing is a test of faith with eternal blessings. In the Old Testament, Abraham proved his faith by paying tithes to the great high priest Melchizedek. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, vowed to the Lord, Of all thou shalt give me, I will surely give you the tenth unto thee. Tithing has been established in these latter days as an essential law for members of the Lord's restored Church. It is one of the basic ways we witness our faith in Him and our obedience to His laws and commandments. Tithing is one of the commandments that qualifies us by our faith to enter the temple, the house of the Lord. Just over three months after the martyrdom of the Prophet Joseph Smith, at the time of the saints were building the Nauvoo Temple, Brigham Young wrote on behalf of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, Enter steadily and regularly unto a strict observance of the law of the tithing. Then come up to the house of the Lord and be taught in His ways and walk in His paths. The strict observance of the law of tithing not only qualifies us to receive the higher saving ordinances of the temple, it allows us to receive them on behalf of our ancestors. When asked whether members of the Church could be baptized for the dead if they had not paid their tithing, President John Taylor, then of the Quorum of the Twelve, answered, A man who has not paid his tithing is unfit to be baptized for the dead. If a man has not faith enough to attend to these little things, he has not faith enough to save himself and his friends. Tithing develops tests of our faith by sacrificing to the Lord what we may think we need or want for ourselves. We learn to rely on Him. Our faith in Him makes it possible to keep temple covenants and receive eternal temple blessings. Pioneer Sarah Rich, wife of Charles C. Rich, wrote in her journal after leaving Nauvoo, Many were the blessings we had received in the house of the Lord, which has caused joy and comfort in the midst of all of our sorrows and has enabled us to have faith in God, knowing that He would guide us, sustain us in our unknown journey that lay before us. Like the pioneers, the obedient payment of tithing fortifies our faith, and that faith sustains us through the trials and tribulations and sorrows in our life's journey. Tithing also teaches us to control our desires and passions for the things of this world. Payment of tithing encourages us to be honest in our dealings with our fellow men. We learn to trust that what we have been given through the blessings of the Lord and our own diligent efforts is sufficient for our needs. Tithing has special purpose as a preparatory law. Early in this dispensation, the Lord commanded certain members of the Church to live the higher law of consecration, a law received by covenant. When this covenant was not kept, great tribulations came upon the saints. The law of consecration was then withdrawn, 
In its place, the Lord revealed the law of tithing for the whole Church, and on July 8, 1838, He declared, And this shall be the beginning of the tithing of My people. Those who have thus been tithed shall pay one-tenth of all their interest annually, and this shall be a standing law unto them forever. The law of tithing prepares us to live the higher law of consecration, to dedicate and give all of our time, talents, and resources to the work of the Lord. Until the day when we are required to live this higher law, we are commanded to live the law of the tithe, which is to freely give one-tenth of our income annually. To those who faithfully and honestly live the law of the tithing, the Lord promises an abundance of blessings. Some of these blessings are temporal, just as tithes are temporal. But like the outward physical ordinances of baptism and the sacrament, the commandment to pay tithing requires temporal sacrifice, which ultimately yields great spiritual blessings. I know of a couple who lived thousands of miles from the nearest temple. Although they earned little, they faithfully paid their tithes and saved all that they could to journey to the house of the Lord. After a year, the husband's brother, not a member of the Church, unexpectedly came forward and offered them two airplane tickets. This temporal blessing made possible the spiritual blessings of their temple endowments and the ceiling. An additional spiritual blessing came later as the brother, touched by the couple's humble faithfulness, joined the Church. The temporal and spiritual blessings of tithing are specifically tailored to us and our families according to the Lord's will, but to receive them we must obey the law upon which they are predicated. In the case of tithing, the Lord has said, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that they may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord, for I will not op- for I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out blessings that there shall be room enough to receive it. Would any of us intentionally reject an outpouring of the blessings from the Lord? Sadly, this is what we do when we fail to pay our tithing. We say no to the very blessings we are seeking and praying to receive. If you are one who has doubted the blessings of tithing, I encourage you to accept the Lord's invitation to prove Him now herewith. Pay your tithing. Unlock the windows of heaven. You will be abundantly blessed for your obedience and faithfulness to the Lord's laws and commandments. Be assured that those blessings are poured out equally upon rich and poor alike. As the hymn says, It is sacrifice that brings forth the blessings of heaven, not the sum of our contributions. Members who freely give a full tenth of their annual income receive all the promised blessings of tithing, whether the amount is a widow's mite or a king's ransom. Some years ago, I visited a meeting house from another denomination. Etched in the beautiful stained-glass windows, which had been brought from Europe, was the name of its donor. Carved in the majestic pulpit, made from cedars of Lebanon, were the initials of a wealthy benefactor.
The most desirable pews were named after prominent families who had donated the most to the Chapel Building Fund. By contrast, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, all who pay a full tithe are equally acknowledged and blessed by the Lord without special public honors or rewards. He is no respecter of persons. His law and revenue is truly an equitable one. Significant in our day is the way in which tithing is distributed. As we see examples of greed and avarice among some of the irresponsible corporate executives, we can be grateful that the Lord has provided a way for tithing to be administered under His direction. According to the Revelation, bishops are ordained to keep the Lord's storehouse, to receive the funds of the Church. Both bishops and clerks are expected to be full tithe-payers who have learned to live prudently within their means. Within hours of receiving tithing funds from members of their wards and branches, these local leaders transmit the funds directly to the headquarters of the Church. Then, as revealed by the Lord, the use of tithing is determined by a council comprised of the First Presidency, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and the Presiding Bishopric. The Lord specifically states that the Council's work be directed by mine own voice unto them. This Council is called the Council of the Disposition of Tithes. It is remarkable to witness the Council heed the Lord's voice. Each member is aware of and participates in all of the Council's decisions. No decision is made until the Council is unanimous. All tithing funds are spent for the purposes of the Church, including welfare, care for the poor or the needy, temples, buildings and upkeep of meeting houses, education, curriculum, in short, the work of the Lord. When a friend of George Albert Smith asked him what, the thought, what he thought of his friend's personal plan to take what would have been tithing and donate his tenth in charitable contributions of his own choice, President Smith's counsel was, I think you are a generous man with someone else's property. The Lord gives you everything you have, even the air you breathe. He has said you should take one-tenth of what comes to you and give it to the Church as directed by the Lord. You haven't done that. You have taken this money and given it away." End of quote. The tithing of the members of the Church belongs to the Lord. He decides, through a council of His servants, how it should be used. To Church members and others throughout the world, I bear my testimony of the Council of the Disposition of Tithes. I have sat on this Council for 17 years as presiding bishop of the Church and now as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Without exception, the tithing funds of this Church have been used for His purposes. The Lord desires that all His children have the blessings of tithing. Too often, we as parents do not teach and encourage our children to live this law because their contribution only amounts to a few cents. But without a testimony of tithing, they are vulnerable. In their teenage years, they become attracted to clothes and entertainment 
and expensive possessions and risk losing the special protection that tithing provides. As the years go on, is it possible that a man could be ordained an elder, serve a mission, and effectively teach a law to others that he has not lived himself when he returns home from his mission and faces the pressures of schooling and starting a family and a career? Will the law of tithing become easier to live? I don't think so. Likewise, will a young woman be worthy to serve the Lord and make celestial marriage covenants without having gained a testimony of tithing for herself? Will she be prepared to teach her children a law she has not learned by her own experience? Oh, what faithfulness is required of fathers and mothers who would unitedly call down the protective blessings of tithing upon their family and the blessings that are rightfully theirs. Said President Lorenzo Snow, Teach the children to pay tithing so that it may be perpetually observed. If we observe this law, no matter what our enemies may do, the Lord will preserve us. In a few weeks, each of us will have the sacred opportunity to sit once again with our bishop and settle our tithing with the Lord. Your bishop will be gentle and kind. He will understand the challenges you face. If you cannot pay back what you missed paying in the past, go forward. Begin today. Share with your bishop your commitment to pay a full tithe. And in the future, work out a plan to return to the temple as soon as possible. As soon as you have demonstrated your faith in paying tithing over a period of time and kept the other necessary commandments, you will be able to enjoy the eternal blessings of the temple. I plead with you, do not let this opportunity pass by. Do not procrastinate. Fathers and mothers, as you prepare for tithing settlement, I encourage you to gather your little ones around you. Help them count their pennies. Help your young men and your young women consult their records and take inventory of their annual increase. What a marvelous opportunity this is to plant the seed of faith in the hearts of your children. You will start them on a path that leads to the temple. The generations of your ancestors before you and the posterity after you will rise up and call you blessed, and you will have prepared your children to perform saving ordinances on their behalf. It is no coincidence, my brothers and sisters, that under the direction of God's living prophet on earth today, President Gordon B. Hinckley, temples are spreading over the earth, keeping the commandments, which includes paying our tithing, will qualify us to enter those temples and be sealed to our families and receive eternal blessings. I plead that we will not procrastinate, that we will heed our Lord's commandment to live the law of the tithe. I know of two missionaries who visited a very poor family. The family's home was made of press board and sticks with a dirt floor, no electricity or beds. Each evening the father, a farm laborer, spent his entire day's wages on groceries for dinner. Departing from their humble home, the senior companion thought to himself, the law of tithing will surely be a stumbling block to this family. Perhaps we shouldn't bring it up for a while. Maybe not at all. A few
few moments later, the junior companion, who had grown up in similar circumstances in his country, voiced his own thoughts aloud, and he said to his companion, I know the principle of tithing isn't taught for four more discussions, but can we please teach it the next time we visit? They need to know about tithing now because they need the help and the blessings of the Lord so much. This missionary understood there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of the world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessings from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. The Lord wants to bless this family and anxiously awaits their obedience so He can. My beloved brothers and sisters, the eternal blessings of tithing are real. I have experienced them in my life and in the life of my family. The test of our faith is whether we will live the law of tithing by our obedience and sacrifice. For in the words of the Prophet Joseph Smith, a religion does not require that does not require the sacrifice of all things never has power sufficient to produce the faith necessary unto life and salvation. I testify that the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed His life to bring this salvation to each of us. As His special witness, I testify that He lives, and on His behalf I express gratitude to you, the children, the widows, the youth, the families, the faithful, for your sacred ties. These deeds shall thy memorial be, fear not, thou didst them unto me. In the holy name of Jesus Christ, amen. Among the most memorable of all our family activities have been trips to the Holy Land. For us, visits to that part of the world have been life-changing. But now, the Holy Land is a cauldron of turmoil and off-limits to those who would like to go there for spiritual enrichment. Virtually all parts of the world are plagued by acts of terror previously unknown. Confusion comes to many who pray for peace but fearfully face this foe of terror. The perilous times in which we live have been prophesied in the scriptures. Our day has been foreseen as one with fires and tempests and vapors of smoke in foreign lands, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes in diverse places, great pollutions upon the face of the earth, and all manner of abominations. That prophecy echoes an earlier scriptural account of the second generation of human life upon the earth. In those days, Satan had great dominion among men and raged in their hearts, and from thenceforth came wars and bloodshed, and a man's hand was against his own brother in seeking for power. From the days of Cain and Abel, Esau and Jacob, and Joseph, who was sold into Egypt, the flames of hostility have been fueled by family feuding. Hatred among brothers and neighbors has now reduced sacred cities to sites of sorrow. When I think of the plight of such places, 
I'm reminded of an ancient proverb, Scornful men bring a city into a snare, but wise men turn away wrath. Scripture sheds light on both the cause of and the cure for the sickness of human hatred. The natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the Atonement of Christ. Peace can prevail only when that natural inclination to fight is superseded by self-determination to live on a loftier level. Coming unto Jesus Christ as the Prince of Peace is the pathway to peace on earth and goodwill among men. He made a promise to us, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Jesus taught people how to live with one another. He declared the two great commandments. First, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. And the second, to love thy neighbor as thyself. Then he added, Love your enemies and bless them that curse you. He taught the golden rule. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. This principle is found in nearly every major religion. Others, such as Confucius and Aristotle, have also taught it. After all, the gospel did not begin with the birth of the babe in Bethlehem. It is everlasting. It was proclaimed in the beginning to Adam and Eve. Portions of the gospel have been preserved in many cultures. Even heathen mythologies have been enriched by fragments of truth from earlier dispensations. Wherever it is found and however it is expressed, the golden rule encompasses the moral code of the kingdom of God. It forbids interference by one with the rights of another. It is equally binding upon nations, associations, and individuals. With compassion and forbearance, it replaces the retaliatory reactions of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If we were to stay on that old and unproductive path, we would be but blind and toothless. This concept of treating others as one would like to be treated is easy to understand, and it acknowledges the precious nature of each of God's sons and daughters. Scripture asks parents to teach children not to fight and quarrel one with another and serve the devil, who is the master of sin. Instead, we teach them to love one another and to serve one another. Jesus taught the importance of reconciliation and resolution of dispute on a personal basis. He said, Whosoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, 
Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. The master teacher taught us to forgive if ye have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Jesus declared that a day of judgment would come. All individuals will give an account of their mortal lives and of how they have treated other people. The commandments to love God and neighbor are interrelated. We cannot fully love God without loving our neighbor. We cannot fully love our neighbor without loving God. Men really are brothers because God really is our Father. Nevertheless, scriptures are studded with stories of contention and combat. They strongly condemn wars of aggression but sustain obligations of citizens to defend their families and their freedoms. Because we believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law, members of this Church will be called into military service of many nations. We believe that governments were instituted of God for the benefit of man and that he holds men accountable for their acts in relation to them, both in making laws and administering them for the good and safety of society. During the Second World War, when members of the Church were forced to fight on opposing sides, the First Presidency affirmed that the state is responsible for the civil control of its citizens or subjects, for their political welfare, and for the carrying forward of political policies, domestic and foreign. But the Church itself, as such, has no responsibility for these policies other than urging its members fully to render loyalty to their country. Because of the long history of hostility upon the earth, many feel that peace is beyond hope. I disagree. Peace is possible. We can learn to love our fellow human beings throughout the world, whether they be Jewish, Islamic, or fellow Christians, whether Hindu, Buddhist, or other. We can live together with mutual admiration and respect without forsaking our religious convictions. Things we have in common are greater than are our differences. Peace is a prime priority that pleads for our pursuit. Old Testament prophets held out hope, and so should we. The psalmist said, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. Father Abraham was uniquely called a friend of God. Peace was one of Abraham's highest priorities. 
He sought to be a prince of peace. His influence could loom large in our present pursuit of peace. His sons Ishmael and Isaac, though born of different mothers, overcame their differences when engaged in a common cause. After their father died, they worked together to bury the mortal remains of their exalted father. Their descendants could well follow that pattern. Abraham's posterity has a divine, divinely decreed potential. The Lord declared that Ishmael would become a great nation and that the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would bless all the nations of the earth. So descendants of Abraham, entrusted with great promises of infinite influence, are in a pivotal position to emerge as peacemakers. Chosen by the Almighty, they can direct their powerful potential toward peace. Resolution of present political problems will require much patience and negotiation. The process would be enhanced greatly if pursued prayerfully. Isaiah prophesied of hope for our day. Speaking of the gathering of Israel and the restoration of the Church through the prophet Joseph Smith, Isaiah wrote, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people, and He shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. These prophecies of hope could materialize if leaders and citizens of nations would apply the teachings of Jesus Christ. Ours could then be an age of unparalleled peace and progress. Barbarism of the past would be buried. War with its horrors would be relegated to the realm of maudlin memory. Aims of nations would be mutually supportive. Peacemakers could lead in the art of arbitration, give relief to the needy, and bring hope to those who fear. Of such patriots, future generations would shout praises, and our eternal God would pass judgments of glory. The hope of the world is the Prince of Peace, our Creator, Savior, Jehovah, and Judge. He offers us the good life, the abundant life, and eternal life. Peaceful, even prosperous living can come to those who abide His precepts and follow His pathway to peace. This I declare to all the world. Now, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, what does the Lord expect of us? As a Church, we must renounce war and proclaim peace. As individuals, we should follow after the things which make for peace. We should be personal peacemakers 
We should live peacefully as couples, families, and neighbors. We should live by the golden rule. We have writings of the descendants of Judah as now merged with writings of the descendants of Ephraim. We should employ them and expand our circle of love to embrace the whole human family. We should bring divine love and reveal doctrines of restored religion to our neighbors and friends. We should serve them according to our abilities and opportunities. We should keep our principles on a high level and stand for the right. We should continue to gather scattered Israel from the four corners of the earth and offer the ordinances and covenants that seal families together forever. These blessings we are to bring to people of all nations. By so living, our Master will bless us. He provided this promise, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea. I will help thee, yea. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Ours is His supernal cause. Ours is the cause of eternal glory for all humankind. And as peacemakers, we shall be called the children of God. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Buenas tardes, hermanos y hermanas. I bring you greetings from the wonderful members and missionaries in Latin America. As many of you know, Elder and Sister Dallin Oaks and Elder and Sister Holland have been called to serve in the Philippines and Chile areas of the Church, respectively. If the buzz of conversation is any indication, this has proven to be of more interest to the Church than one might have supposed. Whatever your speculation, I think I am authorized to assure you that we are not going to these distant outposts as two of the four horsemen of the Apocalypse. <laughs> for those looking for a sign in all this, please take it as a sign of a wonderful, growing international Church, with members and missionaries spreading steadily across languages and continents. It is a joy to meet and serve with Latter-day Saints anywhere, near or far, at home or abroad, and we thank you for your prayers and your interest in the work. Such service by the Twelve is, of course, not new, and I must say our generation has less challenge in going out than did our predecessors. Best of all, I have Sister Holland at my side rather than leaving her at home to fend for herself and our children. Furthermore, I did not have to do manual labor along the way in order to earn the fare to Santiago. We flew to our destination for a few hours in a modern jet airliner rather than sailing for weeks, even months, in the steerage of a ship. I did not leave suffering with chills and fever, cholera, or consumption. Although I did have a cold and one leg of our flight was delayed an hour. 
I have hoped these hardships would qualify me to one day face Peter and Paul, Brigham and Wilford. As did many of you, I grew up on the stories of the early brethren going to Canada, England, Scandinavia, continental Europe, the Pacific Islands, Mexico, Asia, and on. More recently, I have read of Parley P. Pratt's brief mission to Chile, where the Pratts lost and buried their infant son at Valparaiso. I've read of Elder Melvin J. Ballard, who was called to dedicate South America when that marvelous continent was still one new and rather overwhelming mission field. The service which builds a young, growing Church is not casually requested nor whimsically given. On occasion, the obstacles have been great and the price sometimes very dear. And we speak not only of those early brethren who went out to serve but the women who supported them, and in addition supported themselves and their children, staying at home to raise and protect families, that other portion of the Lord's vineyard about which he is so emphatic. On the day of her husband's second departure to England, the late Kimball was so weak, trembling with, so severely with ague, that she could do nothing more than weakly shake hands with her husband when he came in tears to say goodbye. Their little David was less than four weeks old then, and only one child, four-year-old Heber Parley, was well enough to carry water for the ailing family. In the hours after her husband's leaving, Valate lost all strength and had to be assisted back to the confinement of her bed. Mary Ann Young and her children were equally ill when Brigham left on the same mission, and their financial situation was equally precarious. One heart-rending description describes her crossing the Mississippi River in the bitter of winter, thinly clad, shivering with cold, clutching her infant daughter as she went, going to the tithing office in Nauvoo to ask for a few potatoes. Then, still suffering with fever, she made her way with the baby back across the forbidding river, never to write a word to her husband about such difficulties. We seldom face anything like those circumstances today, though many missionaries and members still sacrifice greatly to do the work of the Lord. As blessings come and the Church matures, we all hope that service will never be so difficult as these early members found it. But as missionaries are singing this day from Oslo to Osorno and from Seattle to Cebu, we are called to serve. To raise our families and serve faithfully in the Church, all without running faster than we have strength, requires wisdom, judgment, divine help, and inevitably some sacrifice. From Adam to the present hour, true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has always been linked to the offering of sacrifice, our small gift to be a symbolic echo of His majestic offering. With his eye firmly on the Atonement of Jesus Christ, the Prophet Joseph Smith taught that a religion that does not include covenants of sacrifice cannot have the power to bring the promise of eternal life. May I share just one contemporary example of both the challenge and blessings that our calls to serve can bring. A wonderful sister recently said to a dear friend, 
I want to tell you about the moment I ceased resenting my husband's time and sacrifice as a bishop. It had seemed uncanny how an emergency would arise with a ward member just when he and I were about to go out to do something special together. One day I poured out my frustration, and my husband agreed we should guarantee, in addition to Monday nights, one additional night a week just for us. Well, the first date night came, and we were about to get into the car for an evening together when the telephone rang. This is a test, I smiled at him. The telephone kept ringing. Remember our agreement. Remember our date. Remember me. Let the phone ring. In the end, I wasn't smiling, she said. My poor husband looked trapped between me and a ringing telephone. I really did know that his highest loyalty was to me, and I knew he wanted that evening as much as I did. But he seemed paralyzed by the sound of that telephone. I'd better at least check, he said with sad eyes. It's probably nothing at all. If you do, our date is ruined, I cried. I just know it. He squeezed my hand and said, be right back. And he dashed in to pick up the telephone. Well, when my husband didn't return to the car immediately, I knew what was happening, she said. I got out of the car, went into the house, and went to bed. The next morning, he spoke a quiet apology. I spoke an even quieter acceptance. And that was the end of it, or so I thought. I found the event still bothering me several weeks later. I wasn't blaming my husband, but I was disappointed nevertheless. The memory was still fresh when I came upon a woman in the ward I scarcely knew. Very hesitantly, she asked for the opportunity to talk. She then told of becoming infatuated with another man who seemed to bring excitement into her life of drudgery, she with a husband who worked full-time and carried a full load of classes at the university. Their apartment was confining. She had small children who were often demanding and noisy and exhausting. She said, I was sorely tempted to leave what I saw as my wretched state and just go with this man. My situation was such that I felt I deserved better than what I had. My rationalization persuaded me to think I could walk away from my husband, my children, my temple covenants, and my church and find happiness with a stranger. She said the plan was set. The time for my escape was agreed upon. Yet as if in a last gasp of sanity, my conscience told me to call your husband my bishop. I say conscience, but I know that was a spiritual prompting directly from heaven. Almost against my will, she said, I called. The telephone rang and rang and rang. Such was the state of my mind that I actually thought, if the bishop doesn't answer, that will be a sign I should go through with my plan. The phone kept ringing, and I was about to hang up and walk straight to my destruction. When suddenly I heard your husband's voice. 
It penetrated my soul like lightning, and I heard myself sobbing, saying, Bishop, is that you? I'm in trouble. I need help. Your husband came with help, and I am safe today because he answered that telephone. I look back and realize, she said, that I was tired and foolish and vulnerable. I love my husband and my children with all my heart. I can't imagine the tragedy my life would be without them. These are still demanding times for us. I know everyone has them. But we've addressed some of these issues, and things are looking brighter. They always do eventually. And then she said, I don't know you well. But I wish to thank you for supporting your husband in his calling. I don't know what the cost for such service has been to you or to your children. But if on a difficult day there is a particularly personal cost, please know how eternally grateful I will be for the sacrifice people like you make to help rescue people like me. Brothers and sisters, please understand that I am one who preaches emphatically a more manageable, more realistic expectation of what our bishops and other leaders can do. I especially feel that a wide range of civic, professional, and other demands which take parents, including and especially mothers, out of homes where children are being raised is among the most serious problems in contemporary society. And because I'm adamant about spouses and children deserving sacred, committed time with a husband and father, nine times out of ten, I would have been right alongside that wife telling her husband not to answer that telephone. But I am as grateful in my own way as that young woman was in hers that in this instance this good man followed the prompting of the Spirit and responded to his call, in this case, literally, his call to serve. I testify of home and family and marriage, the most precious human possessions of our lives. I testify of the need to protect and preserve them while we find time and ways to serve faithfully in the Church. In what I hope are rare moments when these seem to be in conflict, when we find an hour or a day or a night of crisis, when duty and spiritual prompting require our response, in those situations I pay tribute to every wife who has ever sat alone while dinner got cold. Every husband who has made his own dinner, which with him as cook was bound to be cold anyway. <laughs> and every child who has ever been disappointed in a postponed camping trip or a ball game a parent unexpectedly had to miss, and that better not be very often. I pay tribute to every mission president and his wife, their children, every senior couple called to serve with them, all others who for a season miss births and baptisms, weddings and funerals, family and fun experiences in response to a call to serve. I thank all who in challenging circumstances across the Church 
do the best they can to build the kingdom of God on earth. I testify of the sacrifice and service of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave everything for us and in that spirit of giving said, Follow thou me. If any man serve me, let him follow me, he said, and where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my Father honor. Such service inevitably brings challenging decisions about how to balance priorities and how best to be the disciple he wishes us to be. I thank him for his divine guidance in helping us make those decisions and assisting us to find the right way for all concerned. I thank him that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and that he has called us to do some of the same for each other. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. The word sacrifice brings forth the blessings from heaven. From the hymn, Praise to the Man, Always Stir My Soul. Sacrifice is defined as the act of giving up something of value for the sake of something of greater value or importance. Sacrifice comes in many forms. Latter-day Saints make a covenant with the Lord to sacrifice. By doing so, we surrender our will to His, dedicating our lives to building up His kingdom and serving His children. For those who faithfully sacrifice through an honest tithe, the Lord has promised that He will open the windows of heaven. Not only does that such sacrifice bless the individual and the family, but those voluntary contributions to the Church provide the energizing resources that help the kingdom of the Lord to perform miracles every day. King Benjamin said, Consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. For behold, they are blessed in all things, both temporal and spiritual. The faithful contribution of tithes is an outward expression of an inner commitment to sacrifice. Obeying the law of the fast is another form of sacrifice. The Lord asks us to set aside one Sunday a month to fast for two meals. We are invited to contribute the money saved on the cost of those two meals to the Church so it can assist those in need. Fasting and contributing a generous offering have a refining effect upon the soul. President Spencer W. Kimball stated, Upon practicing the law of the fast, one finds a personal wellspring of power to overcome self-indulgence and selfishness. Temple and family history work is another, is a sacrifice of love. Faithful saints contribute millions of hours compiling family history. They research microfilms and records, and with pens and computers, they record dates and events. In the temple, they perform sacred ordinances for their precious ancestry, 
like the Savior, this is an expression of sacrifice, doing something for others which they cannot do for themselves. A few years ago, while on a church assignment in St. Petersburg, Russia, my wife Mary Jane and I had the unique opportunity to feel the blessings of family history work. We visited the Vital Statistics Archive to view the Church's efforts to microfilm some of the records of Western Russia. As I watched the archivist photographing pages of moldy old books from the city of Skov, the names became real people. They seemed to leap right off the page and say, You found me. I'm no longer lost. And I know that someday, someone, somewhere in my family, will take my name to the temple, and I'll be baptized and endowed, and my wife and children will be sealed to me. Thank you. Joseph Smith's life was an example of unselfish sacrifice for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Though the prophet suffered greatly, he remained optimistic and overcame many persecutions. Parley P. Pratt tells of a heart-rending experience of being with the prophet in jail in Liberty, Missouri in the winter of 1838-39. Those six months of suffering and confinement tutored this foreordained preeminent prophet. In the jail, the prophet and his brethren listened to the boasting and despicable abuses the guards committed amongst the Mormons. Finally, the prophet could abide their sordid cursing no longer. Suddenly he stood and in a voice of thunder said, Silence, ye fiends of the infernal pit. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to be still. He stood erect in terrible majesty, chained without a weapon, unruffled and dignified as an angel. The quaking guards shrank into a corner, dropped their weapons, and begged his pardon, and then remained quiet through the change of guards. Brother Pratt writes further, I've seen the ministers of justice clothed in magisterial robes. I have witnessed the Congress in a solemn session. I've tried to conceive of kings, of royal courts, of thrones and crowns, but dignity and majesty I have seen but once as it stood in chains at midnight in a dungeon in an obscure village of Missouri. Some weeks later, after that event, in another dark hour, Joseph implored the Lord for guidance. The Lord answered, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. And then the Lord said these intriguing words to the prophet, The ends of the earth shall inquire after thy name. Five years later, looking back on the incomplete construction of the Nauvoo Temple, Joseph knew his journey's end was near and that he was going like a lamb to the slaughter. Yet he was calm as a summer's morning. 
With assurances for his protection, he submitted to one more arrest. However, his trust was dishonored, and on June 27, 1844, he and his brother Hiram were savagely murdered in Carthage jail. The ends of the earth have inquired after the name of Joseph Smith, and today the sun never sets on the worldwide membership of the restored Church of Jesus Christ. These words about the martyred Abraham Lincoln also describe the majesty of the prophet Joseph Smith. Quote, Here was a man to hold against the world, a man to match the mountains and the sea. And when he fell in whirlwind, he went down as a lordly cedar, green with boughs goes down, with a mighty shout upon the hills, and leaves a lonesome place against the sky. There can be no greater sacrifice than the atoning sacrifice of the Savior Jesus Christ. His atonement, though incomprehensible and without equal, was this world's crowning event. Gratefully, because of His supreme offer of charity, there is no sting of death, and the grave has no victory. Our challenge is to unselfishly sacrifice all that we have been given, including our will. Elder Neal A. Maxwell rightly said, The submission of one's will is really the only uniquely personal thing we have to place on God's altar. The many other things we give are actually the things He has already given or loaned to us. Sacrifice is ultimately a matter of the heart. The heart. Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind. If we are caring, if we are charitable, if we are obedient to God and follow His prophets, our sacrifices will bring forth the blessings of heaven. In an unusual way, I experienced a glimpse of our Savior's sacrifice of love for me. While in Jerusalem on Christmas Eve, my wife and I witnessed, visited several of the sites where the Savior walked and taught. The agony suffered by the Savior brought deep sorrow to us as we stood in the dungeon below the palace of Caiaphas. It was there that our Lord was flogged and scourged. We saw the chain holes in the wall, and with tears we sang, A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief. He was so alone amongst vile perpetrators. With aching hearts, we prayed for courage to be His worthy servants. Shortly thereafter, we visited the empty garden tomb. And the words from the scriptures, He is not here, He is risen, resounded through our hearts. Eliza R. Snow penned, Although in agony he hung, no murmuring word escaped his tongue, his high commission to fulfill. He magnified his Father's will. He died a sacrifice for sin that man may live and glory win. The Savior's Atonement was the greatest act of charity known to mankind. We sing these words by President Gordon B. Hinckley. 
He lives, my one sure rock of faith, the one bright hope of men on earth, the beacon to a better way, the light beyond the veil of death. I sorrow that a single drop of His blood was shed for me. I pray that someday I will meet the Savior. I will kneel and kiss the wounded hands and feet, and He will wipe away my tears. I pray that He will say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Because of His mercy, we have hope, brothers and sisters. He is the fount of our every blessing. Of this I testify in the greatest name, in the name of the greatest example of sacrifice, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of my richest memories are associated with weekend assignments to state conferences. As I have accompanied a stake president to visits to, his, to members of his stake wrestling with life's challenges in courage and faith, especially those who have lost a child or who are struggling valiantly in nursing a sick or a crippled or a handicapped child, I know from poignant personal experience that there is no night quite so dark as the loss of a child. Neither is there any day quite so long and exhausting as the relentlessness of caring for a child crippled in form or faculty. All such parents can empathize exquisitely with the father of the child afflicted with a dumb spirit who, when admonished by the Savior to believe, responded in anguish of soul, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And so today I wish to speak to all who are struggling in this laboratory of applied faith that is called mortality, and in particular to those bereaved, burdened, and grieving parents who beseechingly ask, Why? First, please know that grief is the natural byproduct of love. One cannot selflessly love another person and not grieve at his suffering or eventual death. The only way to avoid the grief would be to not experience the love, and it is love that gives life its richness and meaning. Hence what a grieving parent can expect to receive from the Lord in response to earnest supplication may not necessarily be an elimination of grief so much as a sweet reassurance that whatever his or her circumstances, one's child is in the tender care of a loving Heavenly Father. Next. Do not ever doubt the goodness of God, even if you do not know why. The overarching question asked by the bereaved and the burdened is simply this, why? Why did our daughter die when we prayed so hard that she would live and when she received priesthood blessings? Why are we struggling with this misfortune when others relate miraculous healing experiences for their loved ones? These are natural questions, understandable questions. But they are also questions that usually go begging in mortality. The Lord has said simply, My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the Son's will was swallowed up in the will of the Father, so must ours. Still, we mortals quite naturally want to know the why. Yet in pressing too earnestly for the answer, we may forget that mortality was designed, in a manner of speaking, as the season of unanswered questions. Mortality has a different, more narrowly defined purpose. It is a proving ground, a probationary state, a time to walk by faith, a time to prepare to meet God. 
It is in nurturing humility and submissiveness that we may comprehend the fullness of the intended mortal experience and put ourselves in a frame of mind and heart to receive the promptings of the Spirit. Reduced to their essence, humility and submissiveness are an expression of complete willingness to let the why questions go unanswered for now, or perhaps even to ask, why not? It is in enduring well to the end that we achieve this life's purposes. I believe that mortality's supreme test is to face the why and then let it go, trusting humbly in the Lord's promise that all things must come to pass in their time. But the Lord has not left us comfortless or without any answers. As to the healing of the sick, He has clearly said, And again it shall come to pass that he that hath faith in me to be healed and is not appointed unto death shall be healed. All too often we overlook the qualifying phrase, and is not appointed unto death, or, we might add, unto sickness or handicap. Please do not despair when fervent prayers have been offered and priesthood blessings performed and your loved one makes no improvement or even passes from mortality. Take comfort in the knowledge that you did everything you could. Such faith, fasting, and blessing could not be in vain, that your child did not recover in spite of all that was done in his behalf can and should be the basis for peace and reassurance to all who love Him. The Lord who inspires the blessings and who hears every earnest prayer called Him home nonetheless. All the experiences of prayer, fasting, and faith may well have been more for our benefit than for His. How then should we approach the throne of grace as we plead earnestly for a loved one and place hands upon her head to give a blessing by priesthood authority? How do we properly exercise our faith? The Prophet Joseph Smith defined that first principle of the gospel as faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that defining phrase, in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we sometimes forget. Too often we offer our prayer or perform our administration and then wait nervously to see whether our request will be granted, as though approval would provide needed evidence of His existence. That is not faith. Faith is, quite simply, a confidence in the Lord. In Mormon's words, it is a firm mind in every form of godliness. The three Hebrew magistrates about whom Elder Maxwell spoke this morning expressed trust that the Lord would deliver them from the fiery furnace. But if not, they said to the king, we still will not serve thy gods. Significantly, not three, but four men were seen in the midst of the flames, and the form of the fourth was like the Son of God. So with us. It is common in our secular world to say that seeing is believing. Whatever value this little maxim may have in the mundane affairs of life, it is an alien presence when we turn to the Lord in the dark hour of our extremity. The way of the Lord is best defined by a different maxim. Believing is seeing. Faith in the Lord is the premise, not the conclusion. We know He lives. Therefore, we trust Him to bless us according to His divine will and wisdom. This childlike confidence in the Lord is known in Scripture simply as the sacrifice of a broken heart and contrite spirit. I offer this as profound conviction, 
born in the fiery crucible of life's experience. Our second son, Adam, entered our lives when I was far away in the jungles and rice paddies of Vietnam. I still have the joyful telegram announcing his birth. Adam was a blue-eyed, blond-haired little fellow with an impish personality. As he turned five years old, Adam eagerly looked forward to starting school. Then a common childhood illness blanketed our Southern California community, and Adam contracted the disease. Aside from concern for his comfort, we were not worried. He even seemed to have a light case. Suddenly, one morning, he did not arise from his bed. He was in a deep coma. We rushed him to the hospital where he was placed in intensive care. A constant cadre of devoted doctors and nurses attended him. His mother and I maintained a ceaseless vigil in the waiting room nearby. I telephoned our dear stake president a childhood friend and now a beloved colleague in the 70, Elder Douglas L. Collister, and asked if he would come to the hospital and join me in giving Adam a priesthood blessing. Within minutes, he was there. As we entered the small cramped space where Adam's lifeless little body lay, his bed surrounded by a bewildering maze of monitoring devices and other medical paraphernalia, the kind doctors and nurses reverently stepped back and folded their arms. As the familiar and comforting words of a priesthood blessing were spoken in faith and earnest pleading, I was overcome by a profound sense that someone else was present. I was overwhelmed by the thought that if I should open my eyes, I would see the Savior standing there. I was not the only one in that room who felt that spirit. We learned quite by chance some months later that one of the nurses who was present that day was so touched that she sought out the missionaries and was baptized. But notwithstanding, Adam made no improvement. He lingered between this life and the next for several more days as we pleaded with the Lord to return him to us. Finally, one morning after a fitful night, I walked alone down a deserted hospital corridor. I spoke to the Lord and told him that we wanted our little boy to return so very much. But nevertheless, what we wanted most was for His will to be done, and that we, Pat and I, would accept that. Adam crossed the threshold into the eternities a short while later. Frankly, we still grieve for our little boy, although the tender ministering of the Spirit and the passage of the years have softened our sadness. His small picture graces the mantle of our living room beside a more current family portrait of children and grandchildren. But Pat and I know that his path through mortality was intended by a kind Heavenly Father to be shorter and easier than ours, and that he has now hurried on ahead to be a welcoming presence when we likewise eventually cross that same fateful threshold. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not thee o'erflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I cannot desert to his foes. That soul 
Though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.